One of my favorite books in the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis is The Silver Chair. It's about a girl named Jill Pole and a boy named Eustace Scrub. It's a wonderful name. <laughs> they're called the Narnia, and they're given this task by Aslan, the, the great lion himself, who many of you know it represents Jesus in the series. And the task they have is to go and find the king's son, Prince Rillian, who has been captured by an evil sorceress who also goes around looking like a very big, a giant green serpent. Great adventure. Uh, it's also a fitting story to mention here because just as Aslan called these two children and entrusted them with the task, right now in Exodus 4, God is calling Moses and entrusting him with the task. And just like in Narnia, he's going to send Moses off to face a giant serpent. You might question why I just said that. You're looking in your Bibles to figure out where that is. Well, I say that because Egypt is referred to elsewhere in the Bible as a serpent. In Isaiah and Ezekiel, both, Egypt is referred to as a tanin, which could be translated either dragon or serpent. And it's translated serpent in Exodus 7, where it describes what Aaron's staff turns into, a tanin, a serpent. So those are all some comparisons, but what really got me thinking about this book for this passage is one of my favorite characters in the whole series, favorite character in the book, a marsh wiggle named Puddleglum. You may not know what a marsh wiggle is. It's the kind of creature you'd find in a Narnian marsh. It's got really thin, long appendages, and, and yet he also has these hands and feet that look like frogs. And the best way for you to learn who Puddleglum is, and to find out <clears throat> about him is just to hear from himself. When he's told about this task, this, this journey that Jill and Eustace have to go on, and when he's asked to help, this is what he says. Well, I don't know, what you, I don't know that you'd call it help. I don't know that anyone can exactly help. <laughs> it sounds to, stands to reason we're not likely to get very far on a journey to the north, not at this time of year, with the winter coming on soon and all, an early winter, too, by the look of things. You mustn't let that make you downhearted. Very likely, what with enemies and mountains and rivers to cross and losing our way and next to nothing to eat and sore feet, we'll hardly notice the weather. And if, you don't get, if we don't get far enough to do any good, we may get far enough not to get back in a hurry. Now, seeing potential obstacles to a task is wise. Inventing them is not. And, and really, Puddleglum, he sees the worst in everything. He's his own obstacle to these tasks. And Moses knows a little something about that. Moses, like Puddleglum, he has a way of inventing obstacles. And it's not that their obstacles are completely fantasy. You know, they have some basis, some truth in them, but neither of them should be focusing on those obstacles. They have someone else they need to be focusing on. And you and I should not be focusing on the obstacles. See, we also have been called. We've been given a task. And so it's important for us to learn from this. When the true Aslan, when Jesus, the great I Am, who spoke to Moses here in Exodus 4, when he also gave us a call, we can, we can now respond to that and be a little public glum ourselves. You know, we can, we can be a little like Moses. We could start to see obstacles instead of seeing him. And so we need to focus on the one who's called us. 
just like Paul points us to in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, where he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. So when the, the Lord calls you to do something, he grants you what you need to complete it. The obstacles are not what we need to focus on. We need to focus on him. And because we can create obstacles just like Moses, it's very good for us to learn from him and from this, this record here. Moses presents three obstacles to, to serving the Lord in Exodus 4. And you could turn there, page 44 there in your Bible, in the pew. And there are these same kinds of obstacles that we can choose to focus on. So what we find in Moses' experience are three obstacles to serving God that we need to avoid. We need to avoid the fear of failure, feelings of inadequacy, and then the obstacle that's really fundamental for Moses, unwillingness. So let's look, first of all, at this first obstacle to serving God in this passage, and it's the fear of failure. Look beginning at the beginning of chapter 4. Now here we have Moses. He's standing barefoot in front of this bush that's burning but not being consumed. Right? He, he's just been told that he's talking to the God of his father, the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a God who, who says that his name is I am. He is Yahweh as best we can pronounce it. And the Lord had just revealed this plan that he's going to send him first to the elders of Israel where he's going to tell them. He's going to rescue them from Egypt. So that's where we pick up here in chapter 4 and in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord had just told Moses to go. Remember that. From starting in verse 10, he said to go. He'd already given the command. And then he repeats it, really, and he adds in verse, verse 16 of chapter 3 to go to the elders. And he tells them in verse 18, they will listen to you. But Moses is now saying, look, they're not going to believe me or listen to me. And they're going to say, you're lying, Moses. Yahweh didn't, didn't appear to you. Now, Moses, ha is, he's just getting to know this God. But this is a pretty startling thing to do, to just flat out deny the promise that God had just given him. I mean, this is pretty straightforward. But notice how patient the Lord is with him. God very calmly responds by giving Moses some signs. That's what he refers to them as in verses 8 and 9. A sign of this kind is basically something miraculous that's done to get people's attention. What's done is shocking, it's surprising, but it's not for entertainment purposes. You know, it's not that God is giving Moses these signs to razzle-dazzle the people. The signs are actually supposed to point to something, to teach something. So they're supposed to, on the one hand, teach the people that they can believe Moses, they can believe what he says, to authenticate his message, to prove that it's from God. This is what, this really did happen because of how miraculous it is. But they also demonstrate God's power in a pointed way, as we're going to see. So look at verse 2. Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, you might want to read that sentence again. 
I mean, God just says, hey, what, what's that in your hand? He says, what, with this, the staff? It's like, okay, just throw it right there next to you. I mean, I, I don't think he, he giggled, but I can't imagine it not being. I mean, look at what Moses is going to do. He's, he doesn't know what's going to happen when the thing goes down right next to him, but, but God does. Oh, it's going to happen. He's the one telling him to do it. And, and what's the natural response when you suddenly see, see a snake next to you? Right? It's to do exactly what, what Moses does, right? Now, imagine, I mean, Moses, he, he's been around for a while. He he's, understands the wilderness. He knows what's going on, and that's his response. Keep that in mind. The Lord's not done, though. He tells Moses, okay, stretch out your hand, catch it by the tail. I don't like snakes. But what I've learned is that a garter snake is, is not the quickest, not the most vicious. You can grab a garter snake by the tail and lift it up. It doesn't have the strength to reach up and grab you. But there are lots of other snakes that are vicious, and they do have the strength if you picked it up by the tail to come back and strike you. And, and just realize we, we don't know what kind of snake this is. doesn't say specifically. Don't, don't know if it's poisonous. But again, Moses has been running around this wilderness for 40-some years. If he's running away, it's not a garter snake. So, Lord just tells him, catch it by the tail. Tell you, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, you're not reading the Bible. <laughs> now, the wording changes here in Hebrew. The Lord says, take hold of the snake, but then it says that Moses grabbed it. It's a different word. It seems like Moses is saying, I'm going to get a hold of this thing because if it strikes, I'm going to be able to fling it away. But what happens? Turns right back into a staff. And the Hebrew reads this, the way that it reads, it's like the Lord's talking him through this the whole time. The Lord hasn't stopped talking. So as Moses reaches and grabs it, maybe even as it's turning into a staff, he says this, he says, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. That's why you're going to do this. And then he gave him a second sign in verse 6. The Lord told Moses, put your hand inside your cloak. And what he did, and they took it out, it says, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. That word behold, it's used to tell us we're looking through Moses' eyes at this point. It's a shocking thing. Now, if I'm Moses and he tells me to stick my hand in my cloak after the last stunt, now, I'm going to be doing that a little bit more cautiously. And when it comes out, I mean, it, it is pretty crazy. He, his hand goes in, and it's perfectly well. When it comes out, it is completely degenerated. It, it's covered in this scaly skin disease. We don't know what it is. It, the text isn't perfectly clear. It doesn't seem to be the modern disease we call leprosy, which is Hansen's disease. It seems like when it compares it with snow, it's not so much the color as the flaking. So just imagine, this hand is completely deteriorated when he pulls it out. And I imagine that at this point, when God says, put your hand back in your cloak, it was a lot quicker. I mean, he knows what's going to happen now. So he, he pulls it back out. And again, it, it uses this surprising language that Moses sees it's completely restored. Behold. Verses 8 and 9, they talk about two voices, really. Three, if you consider the number of signs. Moses is going to convey this message, so naturally, one of the voices is his voice. 
He's going to say this message. He's going to speak about this. And what God says in verses 8 and 9, though, say that these signs have voices. In fact, they're mentioned as voices first. Verse 8 more literally reads, if they do not believe you and do not listen to the voice of the first sign, then they will believe the voice of the latter sign. Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense in English, so they translate that idiom differently, but the idea is there is something here that is being conveyed. There's, there's something that's being communicated by the sign itself. This sign, on the one hand, tells them this really is from the Lord. This is the God, not just a God appeared to Moses, the God appeared to Moses, the God of their fathers, Yahweh, he is. But it also tells them a little something about this God. It tells them that this is a God who's going to grab the serpent that they've been dealing with, a much larger serpent. And you know what a Pharaoh's headdress looks like, right? You can picture that. What's sticking out of the forehead? That hooded cobra, right? About the strike. Egypt associated themselves with serpents. And what this is saying is that just like Egypt is later referred to as a serpent in Exodus 7, God is going to take this serpent. He's going to grab this serpent. It's no longer going to be harmful. It's going to be tamer than an Egyptian snake charmer could do. So, Basically, he's communicating, look, Moses, your mission can't fail. He's communicating to the elders, your mission cannot fail. God is in charge. And then you have that second sign that in in some way just previews God's power. Power over health and life. On the one hand, this is the kind of God who is able to make you whole. But he can also do the opposite. And this is the God who's going in and having Moses rescue God's people. Now, What verses 8 and 9 also do is they acknowledge, the Lord acknowledges that, you know what, people may struggle to believe. That was a real concern that Moses had. And the Lord basically explains that the promise he made in verse 18 of chapter 3 was going to be kept through these signs. And in the event that the the first two didn't work, he gives a third one in verse 9. He says, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, You shall take some water from the the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile shall become blood on the dry ground. Keep in mind, again, his audience here that he's he's being sent to is first the elders, not Pharaoh. So these are communicating to the elders of Israel. This is your God. And this particular third sign, even though it's not shown to be needed, it's a preview of the first plague. And it speaks volumes about how this God is truly sovereign over Egypt because of how significant the Nile was to Egypt. Alec Motyer explains, he says, Every year, the Nile waters washed, cleansed, renewed, and increased Egypt's soil and were the reason for Egypt's famed fertility and so her great wealth and power. The Nile also abounded in fish and fowl. To threaten and destroy the Nile was to destroy Egypt itself. And this, too, the Lord showed he could do. So basically, Moses has no reason to fear failure. I mean, these signs are encouraging him as well as the the people of Israel. You're not going to fail. 
But fear is one of those struggles that we all face. We, we struggle with fear. And, I mean, we could be afraid of failing at things we might fail at. I mean, not here up here telling you you should never feel fear failure if you're going to do something that you can't do. So that's not the message. But when it comes to what the Lord tells you to do, fearing failure has no business being a part of the equation. The Lord will provide whatever you need to do what he tells you to do. We're told that the the church is going to endure. We're promised that. And we're told to endure as a church. We're promised that the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. But you know, there are times that we feel like, Lord, it's not going to work. The gates are prevailing. Look around you. Or we're told, make disciples of all nations. And we think, "Just, just listen to how the world talks about missions. Going to tribal peoples. And sharing Jesus. They tell us that's colonization. That's wrong. You shouldn't be messing with those people. Sharing your Western ideas with them. Just leave them be. So we say, you know, it's not going to work, Lord. Sorry. The world's not cooperating. And, and yet we've missed our own signs. God's given us signs too. He preserved this puny little nation. Throughout years and years of empires and conquests. And, and in spite of the fact that they keep turning from him. He still gave them his promised king. And then they took him and tortured him to death. But he raised him from the dead. Realize that. He raised him from the... Our king has conquered death. So beyond that, that king's tiny little band of of, of followers, they survived centuries of very bleak times, times when both local authorities and, in fact, even emperors made being a Christian illegal. And yet, in those environments, the gates did not prevail. Now, the church, by all logic, should have shrunk. It didn't. It actually exploded. It it spread throughout the Roman Empire. It spread in Europe and Asia and Africa. It spread overseas. It's still spreading. It's spreading in places like communist countries that make it illegal. It's spreading in places with Sharia law that make it illegal to proselytize. It's still spreading. So when you start to think the gates of hell hell are going to prevail, no. Actually take a look at the Lord. You get a little puddle glum. Get a little like Moses. Stop looking at obstacles and remember that he is faithful. He will do it. So avoid that fear of failure. That's not the spirit he gave us. Spirit of failure. Second obstacle to serving God that we want to avoid is found in verses 10 through 12. And it's feelings of inadequacy. Like Moses, we can get our eyes off the one who called us and we can start to look at ourselves. That's what Moses starts doing in verse 10. He says, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've, been, you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses starts with this expression, supposed to be deferential while still disagreeing with God. So he's trying to parse his words carefully. Something like saying, pardon me, my Lord. He knows he's about to say something he needs to ask forgiveness for, so he just preemptively asks for forgiveness. Forgive me, my Lord. 
And, and he knew that, that Egypt had a really big concern about eloquence. They cared about eloquence so much they had this story called the eloquent peasant. It's all about this peasant, and because he's a peasant, nobody should care about his plight. But because he's eloquent, they actually give him justice. Whole story's about that. Egypt cared very much about how well you spoke, and Moses was not eloquent. And this is not an excuse. Sometimes people make it sound like this is an excuse, you know? It is in a way, but it's not like it's unreal. I mean, it's not that this is fantasy. Moses describes himself in such a way that it's clear it's based on facts. This is actually true of Moses. Can't tell what it is going on by what he says. Can't tell exactly what is going on with his speech. But based on the Lord's response, this is a physical problem. Something was physically wrong with him. In fact, the translators of uh, those who translated the Hebrew into Greek, they they used uh, the terminology of stammering or stuttering which many people don't understand. That's something you're actually born with. So you can manage it, but it's something that's always going to be with you for as long as you live. So it was a very real abnormality. And in the ancient world, especially in a place like Egypt, which valued perfection in speech, it seemed to Moses to rule him out of public speaking. And you can't expect, I mean, in Moses' shoes, you can't expect the God to know everything. That's what Moses is thinking. So he's trying to politely let the Lord know, you got the wrong guy. (laughs) It's not going to work. Saying, I'm sorry, sir, it's not going to work. I've had trouble speaking all my life. And the way he puts it, it's kind of a a unique way that he's just trying to stress. He he starts each of these sentences he gives with this, this word that's stressing that this is the case. He's saying, look, I haven't been a man of words neither from yesterday, nor the day before that, nor, nor since you've been talking to me. And he's hoping, he's expecting really, that based on the conversation that would be evident, and that that's a deal breaker. Like, this seems very obvious to Moses. Now, he was right about the first, just not the second. I mean, of course the Lord knows exactly the way Moses is. The Lord told him, who do you think made you the way, that way, Moses? I mean, who do you think is responsible for this deficiency. It says, who makes a person mute or deaf? Who makes them either able to see or blind? It says, you know who? Me. Yahweh. He who is. So you can quit your yapping. I mean, like Moses is still talking. But the Lord doesn't just send him out in weakness. He gives him some strength. He strengthens him, strengthens him by saying... I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. See, Moses didn't really understand his job assignment. His job wasn't to do the persuading. That's what he kind of thought he was being given this task. that He he was now responsible to persuade Pharaoh. His job was to be God's mouth. To be God's mouth to the elders, to be God's mouth to Pharaoh. And it wasn't going to be like the telephone game, you know, when you whisper into somebody's ear. And then they whisper into somebody's ear and you pass it on that way. He, God was saying, no, this is, this is going to be where I am with your mouth. I am present in the utterance itself. I'm going to teach you exactly what to say. And then I'm going to be present when you utter it. He wasn't going to have to be responsible for any off-the-cuff kinds of responses. Tailor-made for Moses. Now, 
sometimes people try to say that Moses has to be disingenuous. He has to be, he has to be wrong here because of what he goes on to do, what he's able to do. He can't really have this real speech problem. He, they point to Stephen in Acts. In his sermon, he, he refers to Moses as mighty in his words and deeds. And they think, can't possibly be true what Moses is saying. I think there's an error in thinking that on, on two fronts. On the one hand, it's an error because people don't realize that speech deficiencies can be very real, and yet they are not insurmountable. Those who think that this could not possibly be true of Moses, because he went on, what he went on to do, they don't understand that this physical disabilities don't have to stop somebody from being successful. Just ask James Earl Jones or Emily Blunt, both of whom stutter and yet are very successful at talking. So on the one hand, there's that error, but then the second error is misunderstanding what the, the nature of Moses' might in word. It's the same as his might in deed. It's not a natural might. This is a might that comes from God. So it's the kind of strength that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12.10, where he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. How can that be? Sounds like he's an oxymoron here. Because the strength that Paul's talking about is stronger than human strength. God's strength is stronger than our strength. In fact, our strength makes it less clear that it's God's strength. Makes God's glory less clear. But our weakness is what God uses to shine his glory, to shine his strength. So, on the one hand, we we don't want to move too quickly past verse 11. We need to Think about what that says. It's a difficult thing to read. Really read it. Moses has this real problem, and the Lord tells him, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, yeah, Moses, that's really hard. I wish I I could have kept that from you. It's the opposite. He said, Moses, I, I made you that way. I make people, the Lord says he makes people mute, deaf, blind. Now, in this fallen world, there are many consequences. But understand what what this text is teaching is that God has reasons for disability. He has a purpose, an intention behind it. He is the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. And he never makes mistakes. We can feel that way, though, sometimes. right? We can ask, God, why did you make me this way? Fact is, God does have his reasons. Especially here, he says, for for those with physical disabilities. I don't presume to know all the reasons why God did what he did, but I can tell you one reason that comes from what Jesus said about the the man born blind in in John 9. He said there, that was that the works of God might be displayed in him. That is why God made Moses this way. Why he makes every one of us that way. Whatever way it is, he has a disability. That the works of God might be displayed in us. The whole autonomous creature thing that we 
we focus on is the problem. Keeps us from seeing things the way we should see them. We think in our independence that it really has to be our talents that God uses. That's, that's what our thinking is. I mean, we're these independent creatures, and so God's going to use our talents, our strengths. That's what God needs. Are you good with people? God needs you to be an evangelist or a missionary. Are you a good speaker? God needs you to be a preacher or a pastor. Are you kidding me? God needs you? Moses is a prophet. That's his role. And with that role, it was not important whether Moses was eloquent or not. What was important was that the Lord was going to teach him what to say and would be with him, present in the utterance. So God didn't need Moses' eloquence. He didn't need Moses. He did choose to use Moses' stuff. And I'm not saying that you can't be used if you're talented. So don't don't take it that way. But don't assume that you will be used because you're talented. The best conduit for God's glory is weakness. So be content with your weakness. And trust God. Don't just be content, though. Boast in your weakness. That's why Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, because that's where God loves to work. So yes, use your talents for Christ, but more important than that is do what you've been told to do. Do what you're told to do. You don't have to be eloquent to tell somebody about Jesus. You don't have to be good good with people to be friendly or to share your life with somebody. You know, it wasn't pastors who were specifically told, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Paul wasn't... Paul's in talking to pastors when he said, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Peter wasn't talking to preachers when he said, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. They were talking to all of us. So don't think think that God gave pastors to do the task of evangelizing the lost for you. The commission to make disciples is given to all of us. It's all of our job. So if you think, well, I'm not, I'm not really good with words, join the club. And, and realize, if you say something like that, you know, I'm not really good with words, I just bring them to church. Well, don't, don't stop bringing them, but understand that it's your job to talk to them too. And don't worry, because when God gives you a task, he enables you to do it. He's going to do what's necessary to see it through. And here's something to think about. If you really are particularly weak in these areas, just imagine how much of God's glory, he can shine through you. You're perfect for that glory to shine through. We don't need to focus on failing or feelings of inadequacy. We are inadequate. God is our adequacy. The third obstacle to serving God that we want to avoid is found at the beginning of verse 13. And really, as I said before, this is the fundamental problem. 
for Moses. It's this unwillingness. So one of my favorite lines from the sitcom Friends is where Phoebe gets asked by her friends, by Ross and, and Joey and Chandler, to help with some furniture. And she, she looks at him and sincerely says, oh, I, I wish I could, but I don't want to. And that's what Moses is saying here. <laughs> I mean, that's what he sounds like. Again, he has this, this preemptive ask for forgiveness. Forgive me, my Lord. And then he says this really idiomatic thing that, that trying to get, tries to get straightened out in our translations. It's meant to sound deferential. But this is what he says. More literally, the text reads, please send by your hand one you will send by your hand. And what he implies is, that one is not me. Send somebody else. Saying, I'm not your guy, Lord. You know, I wish I could, but I don't want to. That's what he's saying. Now, what is the Lord's official tagline in the Old Testament? What is that statement about the Lord that is repeated throughout the Old Testament? I, it's going to be repeated here in Exodus. I like the way that it's put in Psalm 145.8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Slow to anger, as Philip Ryken points out, means two things. On the one hand, it does mean he's patient. He doesn't get angry quickly with us. But it also means that he does get angry. Slow to anger means he does eventually get angry. For whatever reason, we've been taught that anger is always wrong. And that's, that's the vibe, at least. This emotion is the one you can't justify. If you get angry, no, don't get angry. Yet, what is anger? Anger is a response that your, your mind gives to something that you think is wrong. Now, if we're motivated by pride, your anger is wrong. But if you're motivated by God's glory... Actually isn't. And, and we have a struggle with this. But the fact is, is anger is a right indicator when something really is wrong. That's why the Lord gets angry here. Moses has thoroughly misunderstood the situation. He thought he was being given a choice in the matter. God wasn't inviting him to be a servant. He was summoning him to service. That's what a call is. A call isn't an invitation all is a summons. Moses thought, hey, you know, Lord's given me an option here. But it was a command. And it's, it's kind of ironic the way that Moses talks. He keeps calling the, the, the Lord, Lord, lowercase, not all caps. My Lord. Means sovereign. It's not Yahweh. It's Adonai. Sovereign. Master. Person in charge. He even refers to himself as the Lord's servant in verse 10. And here he's saying, no. No to his so-called master. So, this is nothing but absolute and direct rebellion. It has no basis like the other things that Moses has been saying. He's just saying, I'm not going to do it. Send somebody else. And that's why it merits God's anger. 
And yet again, the Lord is patient with them. I mean, look at what he does in response. He still responds to Moses' concern. He knows what Moses is really concerned about, why he's really saying no to this. He told him, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and he will be with your mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. The, the first thing he asks, it's kind of a strange question, and it gets translated either in this way, is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite, or isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? A little bit more straightforward, the Hebrew reads, is not Aaron your brother the Levite? What he's saying is, evidently, Aaron was already something of a to-do in his tribe and in Israel. He was actually the Levite. So Aaron evidently was used to communicating publicly with other people. And that's what the Lord is highlighting here. He's going to use Aaron. This is a concession. It's a gracious concession to use Aaron as Moses' prophet. The Lord explains this in verse 16. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. That's what a prophet is, God's mouthpiece. So because of Moses' timidity, because of his lack of faith, the prophet gets a prophet. That's what happens. And it would appear the Lord has already planned for this because Aaron's already on his way. And when he gets there, he says that Aaron's going to be glad, perhaps because when Aaron hears what the Lord's doing, he's going to be happy about it. But again, listen to the reassurance that God's God gives here this gracious reassurance. He says, I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. So again, the message isn't just being put in human hands. This, isn't done, this doesn't come down to effectiveness of, of the telephone game or passing one message on to the next. God is going to be present in this message. So there's no room for error. There's no room for off-the-cuff responses. God's message is going to be conveyed to Moses' mouth and then to Aaron's mouth and then to the Israelite elders and then to Pharaoh. So the last thing he says in verse 17 basically sounds like don't forget your staff. You're going to need that. And the staff does end up playing a very important role. It gets talked about over and over again with all these different plagues. So it's, it's as Desmond Alexander puts it, this staff will become symbolic of God's authority and power. So yet another way, he's saying, make sure and bring that staff because the staff is also going to show the power isn't from Moses. It's going to point them again to God and to his glory. And everything in this passage really does point us to God, points us to the Lord. First of all, even as, as Moses pictures grasping that snake, it points to what the Lord's going to do in Egypt. But it also pointed to what he would do in the end with the real serpent who's been a problem since the beginning. You remember in Genesis, in the very beginning, there's that serpent, the enemy of God, and there's the promise that God was going to send someone through Eve's line. and He was going to crush that serpent's head. And what do you see at the end in Revelation 20? You see this angel come down and grab the serpent, throw him in a pit. 
So there is evil in this world. Evil at work. But it's not out of God's control. None of it. Serpent's getting dealt with. We can be sure of that. We can be just as sure as Moses and the Israelites could be sure that their Egyptian serpent was going to be dealt with. So there really is nothing to fear. We're not going to fail. Our own inadequacies cannot stop God. But we better not tell him no. Even if we're staring at something risky. In, in the silver chair again, uh, Jill and Eustace, they end up getting separated right at the beginning, and it's Jill's fault. And she's there all by herself, and she's never been in Narnia before. She has no idea what, what to expect. And all of a sudden, she, she finds herself staring at this very large lion. He's sitting or laying by a stream. And, it, and it's also at this point that she's dying of thirst. She's extremely thirsty. And she's trying to figure out what to do. The, the lion's not advancing toward her, but she's trying to figure out what she should do about this. She needs to drink something. And while she's thinking about this, all of a sudden the lion says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Eustace had told her that there were talking animals in Narnia, but that doesn't change the fact that this is a lion. So she's not any less afraid, and, and she's still trying to figure things out. So she's just kind of staring at the lion as he talked to her. She doesn't say anything, and then the lion says again. He says, if you are thirsty, come and drink. So... She's not willing to do that. Finally, he asks her, are you thirsty? She said, I'm dying of thirst. He said, then drink. Jill then responds, may, may I, uh, could I, would you mind going away while I do? And Lewis writes that the lions answered this only by a look and a very low growl. So then she tries again. She says, well, will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? And the lion responded, I make no promise. He said, do you eat girls? He said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. She stands there and finally she's faced either by dying from thirst or dying by lying. She, she goes ahead and she decides she's going to take a drink. And as she drinks, she receives this call from Aslan. And I think it's a great illustration of our call. Because when the real Aslan calls you to trust in him as Savior, but to follow him also as Lord, he makes no promises to your safety. That's one of the fallacies of a popular version of Christianity pop version that tries to tell you Jesus wants what's best for your life right now. In a sense, yes, but just not like you're thinking. What is best for our life right now is to rest in Christ. That really is what's best for us, even now. And it's true that what God has in store for us, it is greater than anything you could experience right now. But it comes through a cross. 
We're called to follow the same Lord who came here. He was in this world. And he was treated horribly. We're called to follow him. We're never promised that that same thing won't happen to us. In fact, we're told it will. He's not a tame lion. But he's good. And knowing him really is worth it. It is greater than all the treasure in Egypt. So do you know him? He calls everyone who's thirsty. Are you thirsty? Do you know your need? Do you recognize your need for him? If you do, if you recognize your need for him, he's calling you. Trust him. Believe in him. Follow him. And if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you're resting in Christ, in his salvation, are you serving him? Are you too afraid of failure? Or do you feel too inadequate to serve him? Or are you just unwilling to take that risk? I'm not going to tell you that you can do it. But he can through you. So go and serve him. Just don't forget to take your staff. Join me in prayer. Father, you are good. We have this tendency to idolize ourselves, to put our our own selves as the most valuable thing to us. And so we assume that the only way for you to be good is to promise the best experiences. Pray that you'd give us eyes to see the truth about ourselves. And the truth about you. See how good you really are. How wonderful your grace is. How amazing your salvation is. And that serving you and following your son is is truly worth it. That we would not want to try to preserve our life and lose it in the end. We would instead give up our life and in so doing, truly find it. If anyone here is, is being called, if you are calling them, we do pray for your spirit to do what you've promised you will do. And in the lives of those you've called, you will cause them to pay attention. We ask that you would do that. They would hear that call. They would recognize it. They would respond to it. And we pray that we would respond to our call. That we would listen to Jesus. We would not think that other people can do our job for us. That we would take steps of faith, relying on on your grace and your promises 
to do that work through us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the way that you work with us even as weak and rebellious as we can be. We pray that you would, through this text, help us to shake off those fears because we're looking at you. Pray that you would use us in this community, use us in our families, use us in our friendships, use us in our workplaces. That we'd be ready when people ask us. That we would walk in wisdom. We'd season our words. Making the best use of the time that you've given us. And all for your glory in Christ. Amen. <clears throat>